You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Good morning. Often on, uh, during my working life, I've worked at a few veterans' administration hospitals. I myself am not a veteran, and I grew up half a world away from my Australian relatives who did serve in the military. And in that context, I typically didn't ask my patients about their service. It could seem like I was gawking, fishing for war stories, asking about incredibly painful matters just to satisfy my own curiosity. When you care for veterans, you often are caring for patients who carry physical wounds, but some of them live, in, live with hidden emotional and spiritual wounds from the things they saw and the things our country asked them to do. Most of my work is with patients nearing the end of their lives, and some of my patients would begin talking in those final weeks of their lives, sharing with anyone who would care to listen some of the things they witnessed or did showing those hidden scars they'd lived with for decades. Many of those scars were scars of, of grief and love. One man told me about his best friend from his company who died saving him. Others talked to friends they couldn't save or friends who just disappeared. Some were stories of the sheer horror of war. One of my patients told me he knew he was going to hell because while the Navy gave him a medal, God knew he was a murderer for strafing children fleeing Japanese villages in the waning days of World War II. Some told me they were at peace with dying because they were still in shock they survived France or Vietnam or another distant land they were sent and that their life since then, since then represented undeserved, although welcome, extra time. None of them spoke of combat as anything other than hell. But I'm not going to talk this morning about the morality of war, but about how we think about and remember violence and our role in it. Hell is ours to create here on earth, as is heaven. As individually and collectively we make choices and take actions, choices to act collectively to share resources or build walls, real or metaphorical, to keep people we've convinced ourselves are different out of this land many of us have somehow decided is ours. Or choices about how we use collective violence, war, to solve disputes, and choices about how we remember that violence as a heroic narrative of strategy and daring do, or the mass infliction of physical and spiritual wounds, an ending of lives that are unique in this universe and have only one chance of existence and no more or less right to exist than any of us. I think many middle-class white people of my generation who've never been to war consider ourselves as somehow free of violence or even above violence. War and the military is something for other generations, other people. And sure, tens of thousands of my peers have been deployed the last 20 years in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. But I can tell myself, well, I didn't really support those wars. I even showed up to a couple protests against them. I'm not responsible 
or accountable for the lives lost or the bombs funded by my taxes. We are in fact surrounded by a system of lies that will quietly take our money and our tacit assent and use it to make war while consoling key constituencies like mine that it's something over there, something we're not really involved with, something for those other people. And even what we call violence matters. The system makes it easy for us to not even consider ourselves complicit in the shocking day-to-day -day violence and cruelty of American life, of our large banks who predate upon the poor and pay police to assault and arrest water protesters, to our business leaders and Wall Street wizards that extract unbelievable wealth from the labor of underpaid workers just to enrich the already rich, and of our criminal injustice system which incarcerates huge numbers of people, mostly black and brown or mentally ill, for minor nonviolent crimes. There are days when I wonder if my retirement accounts aren't in fact acts of violence, as I hoard savings while others go hungry, sleep outside, or go into crippling debt just to get an education. While I wanna say I truly believe everyone's life matters equally, I don't really act that way. So my spiritual practice on this Memorial Day is to try to think and remember clearly about our human acts of violence, not to judge, but to understand. Because if we want to end violence, a good place to start is understanding how we're actually perpetuating it. Let us honor our veterans and remember with clarity what we ask of them. Come, let us worship. Any person's death could end the story. Their mourners having accompanied them to the grave through all they knew, turned back, leaving them complete. But this is not the story of life. It is a story of lives knit together, overlapping in succession, rising again from grave after grave. For those who depart from it, Bearing it in their mind, the grave is a beginning. It has weighted the earth with sudden new gravity, the enrichment of pain. There is a grave, too, in each survivor. By it, the dead one lives. Today, we are asked to place ourselves at the edge of the grave, the graves of those who have served in our military. We are asked as a nation to remember that the grave is not the completion of a life. Instead, the grave is the beginning of lives knit together. We are asked to contemplate how the deaths of so many serving in the great wars or seemingly insignificant skirmishes on the wrong side or the right side might become the intelligences of life, the intelligences of this nation's life. This is what Memorial Day is supposed to mean it's supposed to mean that each of us carries within us the woundings of war, the severe gift. Each of us is asked to ponder how do we honor the sacrifices of those who are dead. That is what the originators of 
Memorial Day most certainly had in mind. Not a day of huge, unbelievable sales, or over-the-top car deals, or barbecues and beers, but a day of song and sobriety and lives knit together. Like so much of our history, Memorial Day's root system is complex. What we think of as the origins of Memorial Day are actually the overlay of white Southerners who reclaimed power after the end of Reconstruction and interpreted Memorial Day as a holiday of marking sacrifices of white Civil War veterans on both sides. As Reverend Justin preached last year, the very first records of Memorial Day show that this holiday actually began in the beauty and the wisdom of black culture and the practice of creating and maintaining relationships with the ancestors. After digging through forgotten records at the Harvard University, historian David Bythe found that the first Memorial Day was held by black Americans in the spring of 1865. Black residents of Charleston, South Carolina were well aware of an old race course and jockey club where hundreds of Union prisoners had been held captive and died of disease and neglect. And they had been buried there in a mass grave. After enslaved African Americans had been freed by Union soldiers, including members of the 21st United States Colored Infantry, the black community of Charleston went to the, grave, went to the race course, dug up the bodies, gave them proper burials. Then they erected a fence around the cemetery and built an archway over it with the words, Martyrs of the Race Course. New York Times writer Sewell Chan writes, some 10,000 black people then staged a procession of mourning led by thousands of school children carrying roses and singing the union anthem, John Brown's Body. Hundreds of black women followed with baskets of flowers, wreaths, and crosses. Black men, including Union infantrymen, also marched. A children's choir sang spirituals and patriotic songs, including the Star-Spangled Banner. Memorial Day was about freedom, but not the freedom it has come to mean in our country's propaganda machine. Memorial Day, or Decoration Day, as it was originally called, commemorated the fallen soldiers, black and white, who died to free enslaved peoples. In one of the most potent Memorial Day speeches that I found as I was writing this sermon, there was one delivered by Frederick Douglass that I think merits you hearing today. The essence and significance of our devotions here today are not to be found in the fact that men whose remains fill these graves were brave 
in battle. If we met simply to show our sense of bravery, we should find enough on both sides to kindle admiration. Unflinching courage marked the rebel, no less than the loyal soldier. But we are not here to applaud manly courage, save as it has been displayed in a noble cause. When we, must, we must never forget that victory to the rebellion meant death to the republic. We must never forget that the loyal soldiers who rest beneath this sod flung themselves between the nation and the nation's destroyers. If today we have a country not boiling in an agony of blood as in France, if now we have a united country no longer cursed by the hell black system of human bondage, if the American name is no longer a byword and a hissing to the mocking earth, if the star-spangled banner floats only over free American citizens in every quarter of the land and our country as before it a long and glorious career of justice, liberty, and civilization we are indebted to, the unselfish devotion of the noble army who rest in these honored graves all around us. Memorial Day is a day in which we must welcome the broken blade, sharp, clear as a lens or a mirror, into our hearts and acknowledge the grave within each of us the new gravity, the enrichment of pain, when the lives of the dead and the lives of the living are knit together and something new and whole and healing can emerge. What if we were to take on the admonitions of Frederick Douglass? What if we reconstituted a holiday that has become a passing yawn for freedom as we drift into a beer-induced stupor? What would it take to re-examine Memorial Day as more than honoring the brave, but also inviting the graves of so many lives lost to inform policies and examine societal patterns that promote justice? and the inherent worth of every person. What would it take to become soldiers for justice and peace? What if we worked for a united country no longer cursed by the hell-black system of human bondage that still casts its long shadow across our nation? What if we strategized and organized for an American name that is not a byword and a hissing to a mocking earth? What if we could all sing the star-spangled banner with open throats and open hearts? Paul Chappelle, former Marine captain and a peace activist, asks us to consider waging peace and justice with as much energy and resolve as we wage and commemorate war. 
He talks about Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. as some of the greatest military strategists that have ever lived. They use the tactics and language of the military to marshal their communities and strengthen their nonviolent movements for justice. Gandhi led an army of poor, disenfranchised people to victory over one of the greatest empires of all time. With less than 1% of the American population actively participating in the movement, Martin Luther King Jr. and leaders of the civil rights movement fought through Jim Crow laws to ensure the long-denied voting rights for African Americans and the betterment of black lives. Waging peace and justice uses the same tools and strategies as waging war. It takes recruitment, training, strategy, planning, camaraderie, tactics. It takes winning over hearts and minds. The difference between waging war and waging peace, says Chappelle, is that waging war is about deception. And waging justice and peace is about the truth. When you're waging war, he explains, you must deceive in order to win. If you're strong, you want the enemy to think you're weak. If you're far, you want the enemy to think you're near. When you're small, you want the enemy to think you are mighty. To wage peace, we learn how to ground and hold ourselves accountable to truth. Here are truths that we can count on in our pursuit of peace and justice, taking from our own faith tradition and the work of Paul Chappelle. Every human being has inherent worth and dignity. We are more connected than we could ever have imagined. Human beings are not naturally violent. War is not inevitable. There are effective methods of peace as war and probably more. War does not make us safe. Chappelle says, when you love your child and they do something horrible, you correct them. When you love your country, you must do the same. You work to correct it. I close with a Memorial Day address delivered in 1948 by General Omar Bradley, who served in World War II under Eisenhower and led American forces in the liberation of Europe. It's easy for us who are living to honor the sacrifices of those who are dead, for it helps us to assuage the guilt we should feel in their presence. Wars can be prevented just as surely as they are provoked. And therefore, we who fail to prevent them share in guilt for the dead. For every man in whom war has inspired sacrifice, courage, and love, there are many more whom it has degraded with brutality, callousness, and greed. Why is it 
Men cannot live as bravely as they die. While the American people have within themselves the moral strength, the power and wisdom to marshal their forces against aggression in whatever form it takes, we cannot feign innocence through indifference or neglect of struggles that bring on wars. Non-involvement in peace means certain involvement in war. He continues, either we shall employ our strength, power, and conscience boldly and righteously in defense of human dignity and freedom, or we shall waste these reserves for peace and default to the forces that breed new wars. My friends, today let us place ourselves at the edge of the grave and invite the dead to become the intelligences of our lives. They come into us helpless, the poet says, tender as newborn into the world. And great is the burden of our care. We must be true to ourselves, true to the fundamental values of our faith. May we honor the severe gift we have been given and join in the army of justice and peace. May it be so, and amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.